Hi, friends. Thank you for tuning in to the City Church Lenten podcast series we are calling Again and Again, God's Sacred Refrain. During this series, we will emphasize that God who meets us, comes to us, never gives up on us, and is for us again and again. During Lent, we are also being invited into the spiritual practice of walking with Jonathan Stahls of Intrinsic Paths. Each week, Jonathan will be sharing a podcast, video, and list of resources to help you on your journey of walking through Lent. You can find out more at citychurchsf.org walking. Again, thank you for listening to this series. And if you would like to support the work of City Church, you can do so by visiting our website at citychurchsf.org give. Finally, we would love to see you at our weekly live stream service at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch. Grace and peace to you in this season of Lent. The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 28 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, City Church. You know, we're in the second week of Lent. And we're exploring a sermon series that we're calling again and again God's sacred refrain because we're on the journey to the cross with Jesus, but reminded again and again all along the way, the steady, constant call of a faithful God on that journey. But you know, even though this is the second week of Lent, I know for many of us, this feels like the second year of Lent because it was almost exactly a year ago that we went into lockdown and embarked on this long, confusing, painful journey of stripping away so much of what ordinarily brings us joy and connection and then just experiencing so much loss along the way. And like a lot of you, I'm sure, I found myself reflecting on those early days of March last year, a lot in the last few days in particular. I actually preached 
the last service where we gathered together in person at the Russian Center when we were all still there on March 8th last year. And that night, Kristen and I went out for her birthday dinner. We went to the Progress on Fillmore, and that would turn out to be the last meal we've had at a restaurant. And, and I missed that place. And then in what seems absolutely crazy now, I actually got on a plane the next morning and went to a wilderness spirituality retreat in New Mexico in the, in the high desert at Ghost Ranch. I know many of you have been there. And that was the week the world literally fell apart. And I was in the desert and I didn't have a cell signal. And a few days later, I flew home on an empty 777. There might have been 10 people on this enormous plane. We found out school was being canceled. I did my pandemic stock up grocery runs, which Kristen still makes fun of me about because in, in fact, last night she reminded me we still have three unopened bottles of Cholula from those runs I did a year ago. And I don't know what I was thinking. You know, there were four or five bottles, I guess, at the time, but I, maybe I was hoping that lockdown could include a lot of tacos or something. I don't know, but it's still here, all the Cholula. I got home that evening and the sun was going down on that first evening of lockdown. And we typically, as a family, we had a Lenten practice where we wouldn't use artificial light at night. We did this for several years, just lots of candles and oil lamps. And it was contemplative and it was pretty, um, it was really dark in our house. But, but that night, as the world was falling apart, I turned and looked at Kristen and just said, like, we're not, we're not doing this anymore, right? We're not doing Lent anymore. We're not turning the lights off. And she seemed to agree. And so instead, I spent that first night of lockdown watching the news on TV and eating my way through an entire one pound bag of peanut M&Ms. Now, just to be clear, when you're at the grocery store in the checkout line and you get the big pack of peanut M&Ms that you can like share with some people, those are usually four ounces, four ounces. I ate a pound of peanut M&Ms that first night of lockdown in Lent, which just felt like the least Lenty thing I could do at that moment. But here we are a year later, a year later, and we're still in it. It feels like Lent 2020 never ended. And so when we come to a passage like the one today where we meet a Jesus that tells us we have to take up our cross and lose our lives, I completely understand if you just don't feel like you've got it in you right now to hear much of that. But right at the beginning, right at the beginning, I want to give us a little encouragement because there's a lot going on in this passage for sure. And Jesus uses some very stark language, but he's also giving us the key, the key to finding life, the key to finding a true life and full life, even now, even in a, in a pandemic. This is actually the turning point in Mark's gospel. Okay, this is where Mark finally tells us who Jesus really is. And it takes place in a conversation Jesus has walking with his disciples, having just made a, a turn in their journey and now heading in the general direction of Jerusalem, where he ultimately would be crucified. And walking along, Jesus asks his closest friends, these disciples that are with him, he asks them, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others said, you're one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. 
So by this point, Jesus already has a very strong public reputation. Many people are coming to see him as a great prophet and a healer in the spirit of others who had gone before, like John the Baptist or Elijah. But Jesus makes his question crystal clear to his disciples. Who do you say I am? What am I really to you? And Peter jumps in, as Peter is prone to do. He's the first to articulate something, though, that I, that I imagine was on the edge of many of their minds. That Jesus isn't merely a great prophet in a long line of Hebrew prophets. He's much more. That he's the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. The Christ, the anointed one. The one the prophets had always said would come and save and heal the oppressed nation. And I want us to see that initially, initially at least, Peter's response is rooted in great attentiveness and great faith. In fact, in Matthew's account of this scene, a different account in Matthew, Jesus actually praises Peter, saying, Blessed are you, Peter, for, for this was not re revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. But, but, here Jesus also says, Keep it a secret. And Mark notes he says this sternly. He's serious. Keep this a secret. And what we'll see is the reason they had to keep it a secret was because they had no idea what the Messiah was actually here to do. They still had so much to learn. Because at the time, there were a lot of different ideas and predictions about who this Messiah would be. But they all, in one way or another, expected a Messiah who would deliver a victory and freedom for the, from the, for the people of Israel over their Roman oppressors. As the Catholic scholar Mary Healy says, the whole understanding of Messiah needed to be purged of its human triumphalistic connotations before it could be proclaimed openly to the world. Jesus' mission had nothing to do, nothing to do with using political or military power to overthrow the enemies of Israel. It had everything to do with overthrowing the power of sin through the cross. Jesus has to radically reinterpret for the disciples what the Messiah was all about. And he tells them, tells them that while they're all waking, making their way generally towards Jerusalem, he says, we're going to get there, we're going to get to Jerusalem, and when they get there, when we get there, everyone from the religious establishment is going to reject me and it's going to have me killed. And in verse 32, Mark says, Jesus said all this quite openly. It's a key word because Mark doesn't use that word anywhere else. It's openly or plainly. And he's trying to make sure, um, Jesus trying to make sure, changing his tone to make it crystal clear, the Messiah is going to suffer and die. And Peter hears that and he wants none of that. Remarkably, he, he actually has the hubris to pull Jesus aside, to set him straight, to rebuke him, to set him straight. Peter's like, Jesus, uh, come here for a second. Why? Why did you just say such a crazy thing that you must suffer and die? I mean, we just agreed you're the Messiah. You just gave me the ultimate shout out and said that I had heard that straight from God. You praised my faith. But we all know the Messiah saves us. The Messiah is victorious. A dead Messiah? A dead Messiah is a failed Messiah, Jesus. And we've already had a few of those as a nation. So please don't confuse these poor disciples like this. Go back in there and tell them you're going to win. Tell them we're going to win. And you know, I don't know 
I don't know what Peter expected to happen next, but I bet it wasn't this because Jesus turns and looks at his disciples. Now hear this, he is talking to Peter, but he turns and looks straight at the rest of the disciples to make sure they hear what he's about to say. And then to Peter, he says the words, you never want to hear the son of God say to you, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, I could only imagine the surge of confusion and instant regret shooting up Peter's spine as this happens because apparently he's made a serious miscalculation and trying to set Jesus straight. And it reminds me of the time when I was six years old and in my six-year-old brain, I thought I had figured out a clever way to stay out extra late with my friends by clearly explaining to my mother that she wasn't really my boss and couldn't really tell me what to do. Because in my, my six-year-old logic, my dad was my boss. And clearly, you can only have one boss. I mean, that's just like an uncontroverted six-year-old fact. And dad wasn't home at the moment. And as I'm giving her, my mom, this masterful legal argument, and as I see the look of dumbfounded anger, it was a mix of dumbfounded anger, uh, but it was severe, spread over the face of the woman who brought me into the world and was listening to her six-year-old kid explain why she has no authority over his life, I knew I had just made a major miscalculation, that this wasn't going to end well. And I honestly don't remember much of what happened next, but I remember that feeling, much like Peter probably had in that moment. But I love this scene because on the one hand, Jesus gets really mad. He's really disturbed by what Peter's doing. And I think it shows us a bit of Jesus' humanity, that he could be tempted and maybe even triggered in a sense, that Peter's so-called rebuke wasn't just a small mistake, but it actually, and this is the key, it actually set the very same temptation in front of Jesus that Satan had tried in the wilderness that we, we heard about last week in Fred's sermon. Peter is unknowingly doing Satan's work here. And so Jesus calls him Satan and says, get behind me. And that's an interesting phrase in the Greek because it literally means get back in line, get back in line, get back to following me. Because what you're doing here, Peter, is from the devil. It's pure ego. You're looking for a quick victory, and that has nothing to do with why I've come. That's, that's what's embedded in what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus expands his audience further. So now he's not only addressing the disciples and Peter, but he calls the crowd, the, the broader crowd that's traveling with him, calls them close in to join with the disciples. And he teaches them saying, look, it's in verse 34, look, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Now, it's difficult for us today to imagine the shocking intensity of the point that Jesus is making to the crowd that day. These are people who are looking for a leader. And some are beginning to see Jesus as the Messiah. But what he's saying is the path he's leading them on is the death march. It's a death march that a lowly criminal 
would take to their crucifixion, where the Romans would make the condemned carry their own crossbar, just like they did Jesus. The crowd would have just been stunned to hear this. The Singaporean scholar Tan Kim Wat says, there cannot be a more vivid way of stating the cost of following the Messiah. In the first century context, the implication of the saying is that the followers of the Messiah are not those who carry swords to depose pretenders to the throne, but crosses to die with him. No greater statement of self-renunciation and opposition to violence can be stated. And you know, for some in that crowd, and eventually even for Peter himself, the teaching proved to be literal. A life of following Jesus would eventually mean losing their physical lives. And for some today, particularly where following Christ or sharing the good news of his inbreaking kingdom of justice and peace, where that runs afoul of the powers of empire, following Jesus can still be a life-threatening decision in some places at some times. But you know, for most of us, taking up our cross and losing our life to find it is something far more subtle, but so important. So important. But as we look at that, the first thing, the first thing we have to do is to examine what version of Jesus we're really trying to follow anyway. Because one of the most unsettling realizations of my adult life, especially over the last few years, is to see in sometimes horrifying ways how we are capable of making Jesus into almost anything we want him to be. Like Peter, we can create a Messiah to support almost any cause, to confirm almost any bias. I mean, in my own life, just in my own life so far, I've tried following signs and wonders Jesus. I've tried following moral purity Jesus. I've tried following crazy end times rapture Jesus. That's a, that's a really fun one you can really lose yourself in. And for a short, a short while in my young adult life, I even tried to follow a version of Christian nationalism, Jesus. And you know, there's plenty of other ones. There's prosperity, Jesus. There's QAnon, Jesus. In fact, on January 6th, there were a shocking number of Jesus saves signs in that mob that stormed the Capitol. But a true encounter with Jesus, a true encounter will never be one where his messiahship is used for our purposes, even for our highest and most noble intentions. Say that again, our, a true encounter with the messiah, with Jesus, can never be one where his messiahship is used for our purposes, even for our highest or most noble intentions. A true encounter with Jesus is first and foremost an invitation to let go, to let go of our demands on life and to meet a Messiah who takes our sin, our suffering, our violence, allows it to consume him on the cross. But even as that happens, he transforms the trajectory of human history and then calls us to live into that same pattern of sacrificial, self-giving love that can both transform the world and, and meet our deepest need for connection. It does both. It does both. The real Jesus, the real Messiah is offering us a key to being truly alive now. And it comes in this paradoxical form 
probably the greatest wisdom statement of all time. You have to lose your life to find life. You have to give your life away for the sake of others and for the sake of the world to find your deepest joy. Mary Healy also says, Jesus is referring to a total shift, a total shift of the center of gravity in one's life. A reckless abandonment to him that entails the letting go of all one's attachments and agendas. Now, on the one hand, that can seem like an overwhelming task to give your life away. But at least for today, for this sermon, for the this week ahead, Lent week two, COVID week 50, I just want us to think about it as a choice that we get to make in small ways a dozen times a day. Every day, we're confronted by at least a dozen opportunities to take up our cross and let go of our tight grasp on life. Cynthia Bourgeau says something really important. So let's really listen to this. In any life situation, in any life situation, confronted by an outer threat or opportunity, you have a choice between two options. You can either harden and brace defensively, or you can yield and soften internally. The first response will plunge you immediately into your small self with its animal instincts and survival responses. The second will allow you to stay aligned with your heart where the odds of a creative outcome are infinitely better. For me, I'm trying, and I say I'm trying, to see the cross in each of those small moments of conflict or contradiction, in the pain points that emerge that often catch me off guard, and there's that split second moment of decision, a split second moment of decision to either harden and brace defensively, or to yield and soften internally and to see what creative possibilities emerge. And these small, small moment by moment surrenders are the path of the cross and the path of life in the now. And it's a path of life that proves itself to me when I get it right, which is sometimes, but it just as equally proves itself to me when I get it wrong, which is often. But this subtle way of the cross and our momentary reactions can be our daily teacher. Whether we're getting it right or we're getting it wrong, it can be our daily teacher if we let it. Like when we realize we're clinging to an obsession and we, we just loosen our grasp a little bit. When we feel that first twinge of defensiveness, but we pause, pause to listen and consider. When we feel like we've got no time to give away, but then we risk investing time in someone else anyway. When we're alerted that our best laid plans may have been flawed, but we don't double down and we open up to new possibilities. When our kids interrupt us for the 100th time when we're trying to work from home and we're tempted to think they actually want us to lose our jobs and we welcome them anyway. When we hear the experience of another human being that challenges our core beliefs or threatens our privilege, and we embrace at least the possibility of changing our lives. And in all the many ways the Spirit each day 
is asking us to let go of our insatiable need for security and to trust in the promises and creativity of God. When I'm able to live like that, which is only sometimes, it's amazing. The world opens up. The world becomes full of possibility. Connections form. Serendipity just happens. And I'm not in control of any of it. I'm just a mere participant in the creative life of the Spirit. But it only happens when I'm willing to embrace the way of the cross and to give my life away. So this week when I was thinking about this passage, I kept coming back to a favorite poem of mine by Rilke. And this is from his um, collection of sonnets to Orpheus. It's a series of poems, I think it's maybe 50 of them them or so, where Rilke is entering into the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. And you don't need to know that story to, to get the passage, but there's a lot going on. But Rilke is essentially encouraging this character Orpheus to let go to let go of his obsession, his deep love, his deep grief over his lost Eurydice, to do the most counterintuitive thing, the counterintuitive thing he could think of and let it go. And what Rilke says is, be forever dead in Eurydice. Be forever dead in Eurydice and climb back singing, climb back praising as you return to connection here among the disappearing, in the realm of the transient, be like a ringing glass that shatters as it rings. Be like a ringing glass that shatters as it rings. I think Rilke is echoing something close to Jesus here. Give your life away. Give your life away in astonishing degrees and you will find true life. Everything in this world is changing and disappearing anyway. So climb back, praising as you return to connection and be like a ringing glass that shatters as it rings. Let go of what you're clinging to, of your obsession, and take the risk that beneath the small death of letting go, beneath the small death of letting go, you will find the true spring of life that will water your deepest need and connect you with your true self and with the world around you. Take the risk of embracing these small deaths, the small surrenders, and see what happens. Rumi says something I love. Rumi says, when was I ever made less by dying? When was I ever made less by dying? So this week ahead, let's be attentive. Let's be attentive to these small ways we're being asked to die to ourselves. Let's practice the posture of softening and letting go of not grasping for what we think we need, but exploring what life is truly is waiting for us, what life is truly waiting for us on the other side of these small surrenders. God be with us this week as we try to do that all together. Amen. So we're now coming to a time where we'll take our offering and we want you to know how grateful we are for the gifts that continue to come in online and through the mail each week to support the work of City Church in San Francisco and beyond. The work of the church is active and busy even during COVID and lockdowns, and we do need, we do need, and we appreciate your support. Let's now turn our attention to the offering prayer. You'll find it on page six in the digital worship guide, and it'll also be on your screen. Let's pray together. Eternal source of love. In your kindness, you have made us in your image. Help us to live into the fullness of our humanity 
as we give ourselves to the care and redemption of all you have made. For the sake of him who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.